Listener Production. A warning. This episode is particularly confronting and references child sexual abuse. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737 732. And the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. G'day. I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, I'm going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This episode is part two of my chat with former Victorian police detective Narelle Fraser. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest you go back and listen to that episode first so you can get context on Narelle's radar for identifying and catching sexual crimes offenders early in her career. Today, we'll continue in the same vein, this time delving deeper into Narelle's impactful stint as a detective in the sex crime squad investigating child exploitation. Instead of going into the detail of how this crime is perpetrated, we focus our chat on Narelle's personal approach to working alongside child victim survivors and their parents to investigate these crimes, how she would break this earth-shattering news to parents, what she learned about the types of people who offend, and the long-lasting effect this type of work had on Narelle. People need to understand and comprehend the damage that this does, not just to the victim survivor and the parents. It's a whole gamut of people, isn't it? People can't hear it. They can't listen. They can't bear it. It's too sad. The case Narelle explains to highlight this part of her career goes back a decade to when she was part of a new initiative where AFP members would work with sex crimes for a four-month stint and sex crimes detectives would work with the AFP in exchange. Identified some child abuse material from Victoria, so obviously they they ring us, and um, I was the person that um, was on duty that day. And so I went to the briefing, and the AFP had identified a house in Victoria where child abuse material was being shared from, and they had located child abuse material, which involved a young boy. Uh, He was under 12. And my colleague and I, not just my colleague and I, because I I went with somebody else, and we weren't aware and we never are aware of how the AFP identify these people. It's never discussed. So my role would be to go and speak to the young boy. But the briefing was very, very brief. (laughs) A briefing was very brief and uh, we got all our tasks and uh, off we headed to the house. We had a search warrant with us, obviously, and the house, you know, it was a a normal house, to be honest, Brent. You know how many houses just 
they just um, blur into every other house in the street. It was neat. It was well cared for. And a man in his late 20s um, answered the door. He was really friendly. And we confirmed that he was the man named in the warrant. And you know, Brent, when he answered the door, he just looked like any other normal man in the street. You know, somebody you'd see on the train, one of your work colleagues, you know, your brother's mate. And uh, we found out that he rented the house with another person. But, you know, every time I've been at a warrant to a pedophile, including this man, I nearly always have the same sinking feeling. Like, to look at him at the door looking so normal, I feel sick in my stomach because the person, and it's generally a man, as I said, they just look so normal. And you just can't fathom that this person standing in front of you is suspected to what I would find the most despicable crime in the Crimes Act. It's just so interesting to hear you say, Narelle, that you know you, you walk up to the front door of that house, you knock on the door, and still even after all that time, could I say you almost have this desire that you want the person who opens the door to look like, almost like the devil incarnate. You know, you yes. you know yes. what he's done or what he's alleged yes. to have done and you want him to have horns and a long tail. Uh, yes. And it's a really interesting conundrum, isn't it? And, and it's just so interesting that you mention it here, that this is a person that you would walk past in the street, that you could be working alongside, that could sit next to you on the train and you wouldn't have a clue. No, and you're right, Brent. And also he was really like gentle and really friendly and as you say, he didn't have the horns and the tail. And when I say it makes me feel sick in the stomach, that happened every single time. But of course, you'd never, ever uh, show that because that facade that we, well, you have to have it because you can't go in and sort of crawl up into a ball. So you go into into the house and I think it was it one of the AFP members that, that connects with the offender. So what is what's your role once you once you're in the house there? Well, he actually spoke very, very kindly. He was non-confrontational. And really, from the minute we walked in, I believe he knew that his time was up, let's say. And he actually started confessing there and then. And it was almost like we had to say, can you hang on a minute? We'll just get the tapes rolling sort of thing, because clearly he was ready to confess, I believe. And he told us everything. And he was able to tell us who the boy was and where we could find the boy. But uh, what we did find out was that he'd met the boy about five years previous through the boy's family. And I think this is a really important point here too, because for those five years, he was actually grooming the child, this young boy. And grooming, I think a lot of people will understand that grooming can take years. Pedophiles are very, very patient people. Grooming is a very so slow process. And, and this is everything that this um, pedophile was telling us. So he identified who the boy was very quickly and there was an immediacy in locating this young boy. So my role was, um, he gave us the address and everything, so my role was to go and speak to his parents. 
about what had been uncovered, I suppose with the ultimate aim of having the young boy make a statement. And I can remember this day like it was yesterday. Like, how do you start a conversation or where do you start a conversation like the one that we had to have with the parents? It wasn't a role. It wasn't something that I was looking forward to. Walking into the house with my colleague, it was a a male sergeant. You really could have cut the air with a knife because the minute that, and both parents were home, and the minute that we explained who we were, or any time you go anywhere and you say that you're from the sexual crime squad, it says a lot. How did you prepare for that chat, Narelle? Was there a pattern that you followed or, or did you, were you just led by your heart depending on circumstance? I think that's a really good expression. I was led by my heart and I can honestly say we weren't taught at the academy, not that I remember how to give a message like that. This is going to sound strange, but I wanted it to be me that was giving that message and not somebody else because I'm not very confident in a lot of things other than my emotions and how I, I just think I have a, I think I have a bit of a gift at giving bad news I feel their pain, I feel their distress, but I don't let that show. But I just feel I knew I could do it. I had confidence in my manner, in the way I spoke to them. And I think most times when two police come to the door of any house, the people that you are going to speak to are almost prepared for something bad. And I would always say, look, I I need to come inside and talk to you. And I think those words, it's pretty obvious that it's not good. But I felt very, very confident that I had the right words. I had the right demeanour. I just felt I could do it. Any police you speak to will say that this is the toughest thing that you can ever do in the job. The news that you're bringing to that family is bringing a black cloud over that family that will just never, never, ever go away. That's, you, you would remember with intimately, I'm sure, Narelle, how you felt physically walking up to that door. You're feeling sick. Oh, a- absolutely. I was feeling dread. Yes, sick. I was feeling dread. But, and as you said, I knew that the minute we started talking, their life would never be the same. And that black cloud would hang over them in some form or some shape, as you say, for the rest of their lives. And I'd almost say it was torture for us, but for them, it was just unimaginable. Uh, So I can remember going in and sitting in the lounge room and then telling them of what we had found, which was child abuse material that involved their son Oh, their response, I I don't think anybody could imagine the response, but to say, all I can say is that they are extremely distressed, but also what I found, and it happens all the time, is that the parents were, why didn't I see it? Uh, Like, 
how could I have let him into our life? How could I have let him into our house? It's all my fault. And that happens all the time. And I don't know how you can respond to that other than to say, of course, it's not their fault because these people, these pedophiles are very, very good at manipulating and they're very, very good at gaining people's trust. But it never, ever leaves me. And still, as I said to you, I can still remember that day as plain as uh, the nose on my face. Um, and I've I've learned over the years too that honesty is the best policy when uh, the parents ask a question. And there's lots of questions. Once they sort of settle down a little bit, they start, you know, how could this have happened? What happened? And you don't have to go into great detail, but you, as I said, I, I learned that honesty is the best policy. And it was often very confronting for them and very awkward for me, but I would often preface my answer with something along the lines, look, this isn't going to be easy to hear, but I want to be honest with you. It is going to hurt. It is going to shock you. So then you're sort of preparing them a little bit for how they are going to feel. But it's, oh, this, you're always trying to confirm to them or reaffirm it's not their fault. There's only one person to blame in this whole these whole scenarios. It's the pedophile. Yeah. Now, Narelle, you, you, you're sitting in the lounge room of this house. You've just got over the hurdle of telling the boy's mother and her partner. And, of course, this little fella, you're now waiting for him to come home from school so you can have that discussion with him. Now we're at another emotional level again, aren't we? Can you just explain that to us? Again, it was like waiting for, I can't, I don't know how to explain it. It was like waiting for something terrible to happen and you knew that it was going to happen any minute. And the feeling of dread at the pit of my stomach. And there was quite a few times when we were just sitting there with the parents in silence because they, they just couldn't fathom it. Uh, so we're waiting for him to come home. And he came home in about half an hour. And to be honest, it was almost unbearable to wait. And I say that never, ever forgetting how unbearable it would have been for the parents. But uh, when he came home, the parents went into the kitchen because he went to the, the fridge like they all do, straight to the fridge. But anyway, I remember both the parents going out and they were just... So, oh, I think the I can only think of the word just so beautifully. They they just sort of said, "Look, there's some people in the lounge room, and they want to speak to you." And he said something like, "Like what about?" And they said the the man's name, and he was very upset, very distressed, and I would think highly embarrassed, and. He was pretty distraught and his parents took him into their bedroom and I could hear them talking and um, consoling him. And at one stage there, the father came out and he said, he'd like to talk to you. And so I went in and he was lying on the bed with his mum 
and, you know, she was stroking his hair and just telling him how much she loved him and, you know, nothing, there's no secrets, you know, we're never going to judge you or along those sort of lines, just consoling him. And I was sitting on the edge of the bed talking to him and it just wasn't, I'm not saying it wasn't working, but it was wrong. Like here he is lying on the bed with his mum and I'm sitting there with my suit. And I remember thinking, I'm just going to go lie down next to him. I thought I'll just lie down next to him so that I was on their level rather than being the detective and this, um, you know, person of authority. I just wanted to get down to their level. And I remember I said, would you mind if I just laid on the bed? And no, no, anyway, him and his mum were holding hands. Well, then he actually, oh, I could hardly say it. (laughs) Oh, it was just, it was very, very emotional. And anyway, he started to tell me what had happened and yeah, it was, I explained, you know, really all the, why we were there and what we'd located and, but the main thing to instill in this young boy was to try and have him understand that it wasn't his fault and it was all, the offender was the wrong, doing the wrong thing in this, not him. But he eventually told me everything. And look, I've got to say, it was very difficult to listen to. But of course, I couldn't show any emotion because he would then possibly go back into his shell and hesitate to tell me anything. Narelle, the case the case goes to court. My understanding is the offender, and this is not always the case, but in this case, I, I understand he pleaded guilty. Can you just walk us through how things were concluded there? I think there was something like 50 separate offences. In the end, I think it was told to the court that the um, search had uncovered hundreds of child abuse material including photos and videos, there are over 10,500 images and videos. Like, you don't realise when you first go into a warrant, sometimes the gravity, like, you knew, you know it's going to be bad, but oh, sometimes you just, I was blown away by the amount of child abuse material he had. The parents gave a victim impact statement to the court and it's their only time really to tell the court the effect that it's had on their family. I mean, and you don't need to be Einstein, do you, to understand the effect it would have on them, but uh, they used the words like sickened, they felt sickened, disgusted, betrayed, used, repulsed, all those emotions. And they said that they were continually trying to process how this had happened and why their beautiful little boy couldn't talk to them about it. I just can't imagine that sadness, that grief, what it must do to your soul as a parent. The offender ended up um, sending a note to the judge, writing a note, taking full responsibility. And, you know, he admitted saying that I had the power to stop, but he didn't. And he admitted he could have sought professional help and he didn't. He had family and friends and colleagues in court to support him. And I can't imagine the shame 
that it must bring, putting aside if we can, and I know it's not easy, but putting aside the victim survivor and his family, imagine, it's hard to imagine the uh, offender's family, his friends and colleagues, like the shame that it must have brought to his family. He got 12 years with a minimum of nine um, before he's eligible for parole. He'll also be on the sex offender register for life, which means that he will have to report every time he almost turns a corner. The car he drives, the house he lives in, the job he's got, he won't get a passport. Yeah, and his father, I remember his father spoke of the absolute devastation at what his son had been convicted of. And of course, you know, they're not responsible for their son's offending, but they will have that black cloud that we were talking about before. They'll have that over their life, won't they, for the rest of their life as well. Yeah, simply no winners here at all, is there no? It's, it's, no, no. You, you can liken it to throwing a stone into a, to a pond and the ripple effects, this, they go on and on and on. And it's it's an area of, of, of policing where you get to that conclusion in court and for want of a better term, you know, you, you, your job is done and you then have to switch off and move on to the next one. And and even though the, the person is brought to, to task and, and a price is paid, be it to incarceration or whatever it may be, leaving behind is that there's that little boy who goodness knows the impact that that has, the lifelong impact that that has on that little fella and family and everything else. And there's no way that that can be addressed really. There's no way it can be wrapped up and put a bow around it and there's a good ending. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, does it? Uh, No, it doesn't. But I think with the support and, you know, as you said, we go into the office the next day and we, you know, there's another job to do, another investigation, another warrant. And I, I obviously don't know what happened to this young man, but hopefully, like he's got the support of his parents, um, I imagine that he would have had, you know, some professional intervention with psychologists, but I don't think it's anything you could ever, well, it's a terrible thing to say, but I don't think you could ever get over it. Like it would have to have some lasting effects on this young boy, no matter how much counselling and support he's got. And that's the cruelty. That is the the devastation that this type of offence brings on innocent little kids. You know, it's a lifelong, oh, it's just lifelong. A question that um, often comes up in, in that time, in that experience you had, could you identify or did you see any any patterns in these offenders? For example, if we're, we're looking specifically at child sexual offenders, pedophiles. I don't believe there was much of a pattern. They were all different ages from, I don't know, let's say as young as, oh gee, the youngest groomer as such that I had dealings with, he would have been about 12 I suppose the answer to your question is there is no age. I don't, but I can't see a pattern with age. I can't see a pattern with careers, but what I did see was that they would ingratiate themselves into uh, families. I don't want to put all coaches. I don't want to put all 
people that, you know, genuinely love kids and want to see them grow in sport and all that sort of stuff. But anywhere where there's kids, they will be. The scoutmaster, yeah, the footy coach, uh, the netball coach, the swimming and they don't necessarily have to be coach. It's just they are they ingratiate themselves into where children are. Uh, yeah, so careers-wise, no. Uh, they were married. They were single. They were gay. They were straight. Did you ever find, or was it common or uncommon, that once you started to share this information with the parents of these young victim survivors, was there often times where parents sort of the penny dropped or, or, or the parents sort of knew or they had a they had an inkling or some knowledge that something was wrong, something not quite right? I think nine times out of ten, they were absolutely devastated. They had no idea. But then when they had time to reflect, they started seeing things seeing little pointers that they never would have put, you know, put two and two together. Like the fact that, I don't know, um, the pedophile might want to take the young boy away for a weekend just to, you know, go and do some bike riding or something. And yeah, that'd be great. Off you go. But then as they think about it, they think, yeah, he did want to take my son away. So in answer to your question, it was like a bolt of lightning. But then when they started to think about it, the penny started dropping. Nine years, you're out of the job. How often do you find yourself thinking about those victim survivors, those little ones? Oh, all the time. There's very rare that I don't see a 12-year-old boy and I think, I hope, oh, this isn't this terrible. I hope he isn't being abused. I hope he's safe. I, I can understand why people don't want to go outside because, <laughs> you know, you get triggered so often. And talking about it, it triggers me, but also it's a conversation. It's a difficult conversation, I think, for for both of us, for the people that are listening. But we need to talk about this sort of stuff. It's difficult, but people need to understand and comprehend the damage that this does, not just to the victim survivor and the parents. It's a whole gamut of people, isn't it? And like just, you know, often in some interviews, I have to hold back. I actually want to tell the world what I saw. I want to tell the world because I want the world to hear what, how terrible some people can be and what I, as a policewoman, you as a policeman and so many other police have to deal with. I think I want the world to know it's a tough job. Yes, there's a lot of criticism and a lot of it is um, justified, I think, about police procedures and what police do. But there's the other side, you know, we need to talk about the good stuff that they do, the really important stuff that most people don't hear about. People can't hear it. They can't listen. They can't bear it. It's too sad. We've touched on this earlier in, in the interview, but how would you how would you summarise the, the, the impact that working in that environment for all those years, what's the impact that it's had on you personally? 
Oh, my God, huge. I don't know where to start. I lost my career, a career I loved because I ignored the signs of stress and they were there. But I just loved what I did so much and I was concerned that if I did put my hand up and say I was struggling a little bit, that I would be, I was so worried about how I would be perceived by my colleagues. I I thought that I would be perceived as weak, as being unable to cope. And that would have been humiliating, embarrassing. And so I persevered to the point, you know, I could save just about anyone, but I couldn't even save myself. And I ended up, it was only about two weeks after that, that I had a like an, an episode where I was in court for a committal where a, a young ro- woman had been raped. And I remember sitting behind her, it was very difficult to get her to, to the court because she was so distressed. And when I did get her to court, she's in the witness box and she's giving her evidence and she was being hammered by the defence. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so wrong. She's been raped all over again and it's all my fault. I felt responsible. And I remember going over, well, I don't remember going over the coffee shop, but the court staff came over and I was having a coffee across the road. And they said, what are you doing here, Narelle? And I had no idea. But what I found out later was that I'd had an amnesia event. My mind had just stopped. You know, that bottle had just overflowed. And I couldn't sort of work out what was wrong. But again, looking back, oh, there are a lot of things going wrong. And I, I ended up going to a doctor who uh, who said I had PT. He thought he, I had PTSD. And do you know what? I didn't even know what it was. This is 2012. No idea post-traumatic stress disorder. But as he told me what it was, everything ticked, you know, yep, I feel that, yep, I feel that. And in the end, I went to a a psychologist and I did everything that the professionals said. I went to the Austin Hospital PTSD program. I was really, really damaged. And uh, that amnesia event, the next event would have been hospital. That frightened the life out of me, a psych hospital. So I thought no job is worth that. So I never went back to policing. The longer I was away, the better I became. And, you know, I've got lifelong effects from it, but I've um, used it as a stepping stone. I've become this accidental mental health advocate. Never in my wildest dreams would I have ever thought I could do that. But it's funny how lived experience Uh, helps in a a lot of ways. And now I talk very openly. I'm not ashamed. You know, I'm trying to normalise, not stigmatise mental illness as just another illness. But initially when I was diagnosed, I didn't tell anyone because I was so humiliated. And I also thought, but I'm Narelle Fraser. Like, I'm a homicide detective. Like, this can't happen to me. I fix everybody else, Um, you know. (laughs) Yeah, so I was never able to go back to policing. But now I do a podcast um, about true crime, but about exactly what we're talking about today, the effect on investigators, the effect crime has on people, not just the victims, the witnesses, the psychologists, but the investigators as well. And I can't get over the amount of investigators that 
tell me how damaged they were and were too proud to say anything. Narelle, I just want to thank you so very much for taking the time to join with us for a chat this morning. Uh, But I just want to thank you for your service and and for your service to the good people of Victoria, but perhaps above all, uh, your service to those, those children, those little ones that you continue to think about on a daily basis today. And you left a little bit of yourself with all of them, Narelle, and I just want to thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your experience with us. Thank you. If you're concerned about the thoughts and behaviour of yourself or another adult or child, there is support available. Stop It Now is an anonymous Australian helpline that aims to support adults who have sexual thoughts about children to prevent offending. The helpline is for parents, professionals, family and community members who come across child sexual abuse. If you're worried about an adult or child's behaviour, online or offline, you can call the anonymous helpline on 1800 01 1800 or use a live chat or secure messaging service. To find out more, head to stopitnow.org.au. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.